Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. And my guest today is Liz Fisher, who is the Chief Operating Officer at Repair the World. In this role, she's responsible for overseeing all of the organization's development, communications, finance, operations, and human resources. Prior to Repair the World, Liz was Managing Director at Next, a division of the Birthright Israel Foundation. Liz has also worked with the Jewish Federation of St. Louis, UJA Federation of New York, and the Jewish Education Project. Liz's passion is the role of people in organizational life. She loves working with partners, lay leaders, and professional staff. I wanted to bring Liz on the program for two reasons. The first is the work of the organization and helping to understand the role of social justice and social action work in the Jewish context. The second is to hear about her experience in top leadership in a national organization and how her role affects the overall success of the organization. Welcome to the program, Liz. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Wonderful. So we'll start as we always do with just your personal story, all the kind of work you've done with all these organizations and how you ended up in this role with Repair the World. So I'm a social worker by training, and I started my career in community development work in the secular world. And I've always been interested in engaging and mobilizing people towards shared vision. And while I started working not in the Jewish community, very early in my career, I moved into working in the Jewish community. And as you just said in my bio, I've worked in a number and variety of different kinds of organizations throughout my career. In those organizations, I've had a variety of roles from more internal focused strategy and planning to fundraising. And I think what they've really had in common is the idea of working with individuals and with groups of people, whether that's professional teams or with lay leaders, which is really what I love to do. In many ways, it feels the shared meant to be at Repair the World. I grew up in a very small Jewish community in New Hampshire and in a family and in a community that believed everyone was welcome. And that the piece of my career that's been very focused on outreach of the Jewish community is really based in that experience. The classic example I often share is a time at synagogue that my rabbi announced from the bima, from the pulpit, that if anyone needed a place for Seder, they should call my mom. And he hadn't meant that he had, you know, checked with her or that she was organizing series for the community. He just looked out and saw her and knew that she was the kind of person. And I had the kind of family that would just add extra seats to the table. And that's very much the way I grew up. Every year at every holiday, there were more and more people. And at the same time, I was very much raised to believe that service, both to the secular community and the Jewish community, is a large part of what Jews do. Both of my parents were very active in local politics and civic life. My mom served on our school board for years, including a term as president. And they were really active in Jewish life. Both my parents served as board presidents of our synagogue. So I think that repair in many ways has brought the two pieces of my life together, my real interest in community development and sort of how we create social impact on the ground at a very grassroots level and my deep interest in Jewish outreach. My role at Repair, as you said, is called COO. And in many ways, though, it isn't typical to what a traditional COO does. And so while I do oversee lots of things at the organization, as you mentioned, I spend a lot of my time externally really focused on fundraising, on communications, and on thinking about how we can grow the impact that we're having. 
across the country. So as I mentioned, I want to focus on two kind of different areas. And the first being that of Repair the World. From the website, obviously, you can kind of gather a service learning organization created in 2009, mostly working with people in their 20s, helping connect them with service learning experiences. And I also see that there's a little bit of national focus work that I'll ask a little bit about as well. I would just love to kind of hear from you how it started and a little bit more about the work itself. Repair the World started with the mission to make service a defining part of American Jewish life, and that remains our mission. In the earliest days, Repair the World was primarily a field building, research, and grant making organization. And in 2013, we pivoted to launch a series of programs on the ground in local communities that we call the Communities Initiative, which are really about how we directly engage young Jews in service work with local community organizations. The key to the Repair the World model is partnership. We work very closely in local communities with a set of between five to eight service partners. Those are mostly in the fields of food justice and education justice. And so the service opportunities that we're connecting people with on the ground, I would say span the scope of ways to create change in food and education. So in food, they range from things like very direct service in soup kitchens and in food pantries through significant projects in urban gardens to flyering, to let people know about the benefits that they have available from the government. In the education space, our projects are really focused on ways volunteers can make an impact in the lives of children and youth. And so they are everything from working in schools and tutoring kids to working with projects that teach things like coding to children who might not necessarily have access to those opportunities to some kinds of school learning environment projects, beautification projects, those sorts of things. For Repair the World, impactful service consists of several components. There is the education piece of it, right? And we think of education at Repair the World in two frameworks. One is about the contextual education and the second is about the Jewish values. So the context might be you're working in this soup kitchen in this neighborhood in Brooklyn, and one out of every four children in this neighborhood are hungry, and here's why, right? So this context piece is really about learning deeply about the issue areas, and then the Jewish values piece is really learning about how these issue areas connect to Jewish texts and Jewish values and really working through those. Then there's the service itself, which is always done in partnership with local organizations based on their needs. We don't design or create projects. We really support organizations in building their capacity through projects. And then there is a reflection piece, which is really about reflecting on the experience and thinking about how to take that experience to continue to do more in your life to impact these issues. At Repair, we do all those pieces in two ways. One, we do them all together. So we might go to a volunteer experience, have an education piece, volunteer do reflection, but we also separate those out. And so we have many social and educational programs and also produce lots of kind of do-it-yourself educational materials for people to really learn and do that reflection on their own as well. Excellent. You know, it's a year-long fellowship that these participants participate in, or is it that they're fellows, correct? We have two sets of participants at Repair the World. We have fellows who in communities in which we work that have fellows, there's between four and 10 fellows in a community. And their job is to work deeply with partners 
but also to really recruit their peers to volunteer. Our outreach model is very peer-to-peer. So the fellows are with us for a year of their lives, and they get in exchange housing, a stipend, health insurance, professional development, all of those kinds of things. And they're a piece of the work we do, and then they reach out to a much broader group of volunteer participants. So what's kind of the goal? So they go through this program, they spend this year, they go through the program, and now... You know, they're in the world, right? What's the goal after this experience for that cohort of people that come through? So for the fellows, the goal really is to give them the skills and experience and leadership tools to continue to lead in Jewish service work throughout their lives and in Jewish social justice work throughout their lives in whichever way they want, right? So for some of them, many of them go on to work either in Jewish community organizations or in social justice organizations. And some of them go on to do other kinds of things, go to medical school, go to law school, create businesses. And what we're hoping is that the fellows will continue to be real leaders in their communities, deeply inspired by Jewish values and social justice values, and continue to work to engage other people in that work. For our participants, we're really hoping to do two things. One is to open the door to them to different kinds of Jewish experiences. Repair the World did research several years ago that showed that 70% of the people that were engaging are young Jewish adults, and about three quarters of those are traditionally kind of unengaged. And I think what we're doing is opening a door to this vast amusement park of Jewish life and helping them see like sort of how their natural interest in getting involved in their communities connects also with Jewish values. And we are also really focused on helping them connect deeply with social justice throughout their lives. And that's going to mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. For some people, Mm -hmm. they might be lifelong volunteers, right? And we know that more than half of our participants participate with Repair the World more than four times. And we know from the volunteer research that if you volunteer four or more times, you're more likely to become a lifelong volunteer. So some of these people may be volunteers for the rest of their lives. Some people may become activists. We're really helping, I think, participants really learn about the issues in their local neighborhoods and how those connect to Jewish values and how to create long-term lasting social impact around those issues. So I know you currently operate in seven cities, Baltimore, Chicago, Detroit, Miami, New York City, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh. And so when I was in graduate school, I did my thesis work around social justice work in Los Angeles. And I was so mad at you guys for not having it in Los Angeles and really thinking about the value to the community that I loved. And so I'm curious to kind of hear, like, is there a thought for expanding? Is it that these are the most ready communities? Is it that this is where you have expertise? What is it about the cities that you choose to create these fellowships in that lend itself to your work? It's a great question. And it's a very timely question for Repair the World and for me personally. We are currently operating in these seven communities, and we are also in the process of expansion and really thinking about what are the best next communities for Repair the World. We choose communities based on several factors. One has to do with the number of young Jewish adults that are living in the city, uh, which is our target audience for outreach, and also the number of young Jewish adults that are moving to the city, right? There are definitely cities where those, the numbers are growing, numbers of one is growing. Two has to do with cities with distinct service needs that volunteerism can help. And then the third piece is really about the 
interest of local partners, including local funders, right? Like Repair the World's model is very much, we have a value, we say let local lead, and we don't go to communities where we're not wanted. And we launch in a thoughtful way. So from us thinking that this might be interesting community for Repair the World to us having fellows could be uh, a year or a year and a half long process. And so we are in the process of expansion. I'd say the next most likely communities will be Chicago, Atlanta, and probably the East Bay, Oakland, which will bring us to the West Coast with, I think, in the round after that, LA, Boston, and a few other ones. Right. One interesting challenge for us in expanding is the difference between sort of center city walking cities and car cities. And that's an interesting thing in LA, right? Our model has mostly, with the exception of Detroit, our model has been really tested primarily in cities where young adults are kind of living in very densely populated neighborhoods. And LA, while it's dense, there's also a whole commuting aspect to the city that we're thinking about. Miami also is very similar. We're learning a lot of interesting lessons there. I definitely can only assume it's not an easy thing to start up somewhere new. You've got to create a bunch of partnerships and a structure. And as you mentioned, have support from the Jewish community there as well. The other aspect of your work that I actually didn't know about until I started doing some prep work for our conversation is the national focused work. So I actually was very involved in the social action committee at my synagogue out in Los Angeles. And I would organize people around going to a farmer's market and gleaning leftover produce that the farmers weren't selling and it would go to the local food bank. And boy, did I wish I knew (laughs) that there were resources and information and ways to kind of get some training and how to help my community be more involved. I feel like every community has their mitzvah day and their one-offs. And I feel like it's always a struggle to figure out how to infuse social justice, specifically in the synagogue communities, but into any community. So I'd love to hear a little more about the work and who's the target? Who are the audiences that you're hoping to reach with these resources? It is true that Repair the World is also very much focused on providing resources to people across the country, both in communities in which we don't work, but also people in communities in which we do work who prefer to do things in a little bit more of a DIY way. We run national campaigns throughout the year. This year, we're doing that five times, both at major secular and Jewish touch points. So the high holidays, Thanksgiving, Martin Luther King Day, Forum, and Passover in the kind of 2017-2018 year. And at those occasions, we provide digitally resources for deep dialogue around contemporary issues with Jewish values. So around Thanksgiving, it was really about hunger and food justice in the Jewish community. And so we have these turn the tables guides for people who want to host meals and talk about issues. And then we also have a set of resources that we provide year long about how to create effective service programs. So how you can up the game from what might be your kind of traditional synagogue mitzvah day to really think about how you take an experience like that and create impact, how to choose local partners, how to think about projects that provide value to those partners, all of those kinds of things. So we do that work throughout the country. We also work very significantly at a national level with many partners in the Jewish engagement space. So we have a significant education, training, consulting partnership with Hillel who has fellows on campuses who are engaging people in social justice work, and we are providing 
training and education to those fellows. We do significant work in partnership with Moisha House. We do a lot of training for BBYO. So we also work very much with major partners in the Jewish community to help them think about how they can bring Jewish social justice values and service work into their organizations. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before returning to my conversation with Liz, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode. Alan Adamson is a renowned brand specialist who discusses some concepts from his new book, Shift Ahead, and how our organizations might think differently about their branding and marketing. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. I was working on Procter & Gamble's Dawn Dishwashing Liquid. It was just introduced, and Palm Olive owned the category, and everyone was talking about keeping your hands nice and suds. And they looked at a problem and said the biggest problem people are having washing their dishes was not do the suds last or do their hands get irritated. But, you know, grease was sticking to everything. They couldn't get grease off cookware. And so they just said, well, don't take grease out of your way. And all of a sudden, that shot up to be the number one reason. No one had said it before. And and it's like that in anything. So if you ask a consumer what's important, you're not going to get as far as if you ask them what troubles them, what problems they have, talk to you about how they go about doing things. So to some extent, the best marketers tend to be more observational rather than just questioning people, how people behave, what they do in the aisle, what they pick up, how they do their dishes, how they do their laundry, how they drink their coffee. And because they're really great at observing and they focus on the problems, many marketers are more successful than just asking people to fill in the blank. Why would you want to buy this product? Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Alan in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Liz. So it seems like the organization was created to kind of coalesce because I know before Repair the World, you know, lots of other organizations were trying to do service learning in their own kind of unique way. So it seemed like the creation was to kind of coalesce and professionalize this area of service learning. And it feels like maybe that there's a shift between the social action and the social justice. And it doesn't seem like a shift towards advocacy per se, but it seems like more of a focus on education and providing the education piece and hoping people take action and not the education and action, which is definitely what a lot of other social justice focused, issue focused organizations are focused on in their work. Am I correct in thinking that? We believe at Repair the World, and and look, I believe personally that there are many ways of social change, right? There's Mm -hmm. service, volunteer service, there's advocacy, there's philanthropy, there's running for local office, there's education, there's many, many modes of social change. And all of those modes are very important. Some of them provide much more short-term response to social justice, and some of them create more longer-term impact. At Repair, our core focus and expertise really is about hands-on volunteer service. And we know that for that service to create impact, it has to be done in an educational framework. And if it's not, at the best, it's kind of okay. And at the worst, it can be harmful. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by educational framework is that it really needs to focus on how volunteers can support and build capacity of local organizations and really think about our role in the Jewish community of being allies and sort of lending capacity to partners for social Mm -hmm. change. 
right? And so part of what you see at Repair the World is an emphasis on helping folks think through those issues, right? Like what's the difference between everybody take all of their old disgusting sneakers and, you know, drop them on the door of a community center and say, here, you know, I'm sure your kids need sneakers to scheduling meetings with the folks who run that local community center and saying, hey, what do you need? And hearing, you know, what our kids really need actually is coaches. Mm-hmm. And so bring in some people to do coaches. And I think that that's part of where the educational piece fits in. The other thing I would say is that the educational piece is in deep response to the people we're working with who don't just want to show up and serve, but really want to learn and learn deeply and really understand like what are the multiple issues impacting this group of people that I might be working alongside and how can I you know, continue to get involved in those issues in all sorts of ways. I think that's one of the most important sort of service learning things that I've learned along the way is the asking part. So, you know, in, in all the various things I've done, I've, there's a program called Midnight Run that I've done with my husband and his sister a number of times where you go out and you're giving clothes and toiletries and food to the homeless in New York City. But really, it's the asking, right? So if you have a sandwich and you see a homeless person, don't just assume that person likes turkey on rye, right? And like, really, the level of dignity when you think a little more outside the box, like, would you like a jacket? Or would you like, you know, this soup? Or what can I get you that you would like? And not just assuming that I'm going to come in and I'm going to plant this tree. And that's going to be so great, because I think that there needs to be a tree here, right? Or a garden. And I think some communities get stuck in the wanting to do good without the asking what is needed and trying to fill that need and being respectful of the communities that you're working with and the individuals to be able to do that and extend the kindness in an educated way in how you're approaching doing service learning. I really love how you just said working with communities. And we often say at Repair the World that the service is most effective when you can't quite tell who's volunteering and who's being sort of volunteered for. And I think that we have a tendency to think about volunteer service as there's a group of, quote, helpers and a group of people being helped, right? And that's not the way we conceptualize it at Repair the World. The way we think about it at Repair the World is how can we be in partnership in the communities we work with to really work together with local community members to create the transformation that they want to see. And what's Interesting for us is many of the communities that we're working in are rapidly gentrifying communities Mm -hmm. where there are lots of young people, primarily white, moving in. There are longstanding communities of color. And part of what we do is provide space and opportunities for those two groups of people to meet each other and for the newcomers to really understand and learn from the long-term residents of the community what's made that community special for so long, what that community's goals are, and how they can be really partners and allies in preserving, preserving that and helping local community institutions thrive. So although I could continue to talk about Repair the World and all the wonderful work that is done, there's Repair the World and there's Liz. I want to kind of shift the focus a little bit and talk about you and kind of doing your work, your staff, I believe it's about 35 people. A little bit less. A little bit less than that. Pretty big team. Yeah. Yeah. And are they... Mostly all in the same office, so they're all in different offices. What does that structure look like? So our team is increasingly distributed throughout the country. We have a national team here in New York City that's our education team, finance, development, communication, 
our executive team, operations team. And then we have in the communities in which you mentioned, we have local professionals as well. And then we have one or two people actually who are members of our national team, but work remotely from other places. Okay. So very, very diverse. And as you mentioned in your role, I mean, when you think chief operating, like I'm the operations manager, my job is operations, but you know, and kind of looking at your role, there's some internal, there's some external. And I'd love for you to just kind of talk a little bit about how, I guess, twofold. So one, did you ever think you'd be doing this kind of work? Was this, you know, a goal of yours that you were working towards? Or was it just kind of how your career meandered into it? And two, kind of more about how you see your role in shaping the direction of the organization and specifically a little bit about being a female in this kind of executive role and maybe some of the challenges that you've come across or unique perspectives that you feel you bring because of that. So I tend to throw a lot of questions and then you you just have to kind of figure out what I'm trying to ask. I know. (laughs) I guess what I would say is the work that I'm doing right now at Repair the World is definitely the kind of work that I envision doing and... The path that got me here is not the path that I might have imagined being on. I've been listening to some other episodes of the podcast, and I've loved hearing about people's journeys. And I think that one of the things that I've heard from several of my colleagues who I've heard speak, and I feel myself, is that I think part of how I've landed where I am is through a series of kind of opportunistic good moves, right? So I'm not a person who from day one had a path and said, these are the things that I need to do to get to where I am. What I have done is thought really carefully. Every time I've made a transition, I thought really carefully about what do I not know now that I want to learn in my next role? Who do I want to work with? What skills do I need to get? And to be honest, like what would be interesting and fun? And I've done that both between organizations and inside organizations. And I have found in my own career and seen in the careers of others that when I've been able to think that way, I've even been able to create the kinds of roles that I've been interested in. And so I have always been the kind of person who is interested in a combination of real deep strategic thinking and external relationship building. And Early on in my career, it was really suggested to me that I was going to have to make a choice between those two. I was either going to have to be a kind of strategist, planner, sit behind the computer person all day long, or I was going to have to be a full-time fundraiser in the field all day long. And I just know myself and I know that like doing one or the other wouldn't necessarily make me happy. And so I've been both a combination of lucky and planful in being able to create jobs where I've had both. So was this job, did somebody have this job before you or did you come into this job and it was created? It was a new role when I filled it and I would say it continues to evolve. Repair the World is really, as we grow and as we really think about what it means to build shared leadership amongst our team, my role continues to evolve, my relationship with our CEO and sort of our shared executive role, the organization continues to evolve. So I think it was definitely a new role and I'm just thinking Most of the roles that I've had in my career have been new roles. Not all, but many. Right. Many of the roles have been new roles. Self-stated as one of your particular interests and passions is development of your staff. And you mentioned that in your sort of career, you've thought about what are the skills that I need to get. And I've always really struggled with that kind of piece of it. So there's a book I've mentioned before called Drive. And it really talks about three elements to finding purpose in your work or being motivated in your work. So purpose, autonomy, and mastery. 
And I'm lucky enough to work in the Jewish community, so purpose is easy enough. Autonomy, I'm lucky enough to have an awesome boss, so finally found that. But this idea of mastery in which we're not in a technical industry, right? I'm not learning to play a violin. I'm not flying an airplane. It's not so easy for me to think about how do I gain mastery? How do I identify what skills I'm lacking and need to build and practice on in order to kind of build that piece of the puzzle? And I'm curious for your staff specifically, either how do you help them figure out you know, what skills they need to be developing or how do you help them develop those skills or how do you think about that as a piece of the way that you deal with kind of the staff dynamics and helping develop talent? Helping people master skills, I think, or think about what kinds of skills they need mastery of. I'd say there's two, maybe two broad categories of people. One are folks that really have a clear sense of what they want to do that they know, and by what they want to do, I mean kind of long-term, right? If someone says to me, I know that in 10 years, I want to be CEO, there's a set of skills I would say to that person, right? I'd say, okay, so how much do you know about budgets and finance? Because you don't have to be a finance professional, but you're going to have to look at you know, financial forms. And right. so if you don't know anything, let's get you, you know, a small project in the finance department or in connection with our finance team, whatever. Almost everyone who comes to me thinking about their career growth, I recommend that they get some fundraising experience and particularly people who want to be executive directors or CEOs or in senior, even in senior program leadership, right? Um, and that was really something that happened to me early in my career. I started my career very much not as a development professional at all. And I would say if you had said to me early in my career that I was not only going to spend so much time fundraising, but that I was going to love doing it, I would have been shocked. But when I was leaving, my first job in the Jewish community was at the Jewish Federation of St. Louis. And when I was leaving that job, our CEO, Barry Rosenberg, pulled me into his office and he said, here's what I see in you. Here's what I see your strengths are. If you want to have a leadership role, you're going to need to learn how to raise money and you need to do that in your next job. And I took his advice and I went out and got some fundraising experience and it was one of the best decisions I made. For people who know where they're going to get, I think eventually there's sort of a set of skills that they need. For people who don't, I really encourage them to follow their curiosities, right? Are there things that they're interested in? And to just think about not what skills they might need, but what skills might be fun to acquire. Is there someone in the organization that you're really interested in what they do? Like go out and have lunch with them. Sometimes I ask people to think about, is there an archetype? Is there a person in the community that you've seen that you really admire and you'd really like to be that person one day? Those kinds of things. I think of myself very much as a generalist. And so for me, I wasn't, it's funny you mentioned the violin because I'm married to a violinist who has known since he was four years old, what he was going to do with the rest of his life. I have never been like that. I have always been a very curious generalist. And so for me, it's really been about learning what caught my attention at the time in many ways. Right. So a master generalist. A master generalist. (laughs) That's great. I mean, considering your role seems to have worked out okay for you. Wonderful. Well, the kind of last piece of this that I really want to dive into is that of the gender specific nature of both of our worlds and, you know, kind of how you see the difference in your work from a female perspective or even just female leadership in our community writ large of which the the challenges that we face or even the resurgence of and not breaking through the glass ceiling so much, but getting to the table and opening those doors and participating at these levels. Quick story, because apparently I like talking about myself. I was at a conference 
I won't point them out, but I was sitting, it was a smaller conference and I was sitting at one of the meals or a speaker thing. And I look and there's a reserve table and it's a bunch of old white guys. <laughs> so I started looking up some information about the organization and they were all the like board chair and the board secretary and the large donors. And I'm like, what is missing in this picture that you have this reserve table of your top leadership and they all look the same? So I'd love to kind of just dive in for a moment how you've kind of struggled with or celebrated that aspect of your identity in your work. I think we've reached a crucial moment in the Jewish community. And I might go so far as to say almost a crisis moment or a pivotal moment where the executive and senior level leadership of the community is not reflective of the broader community. And that isn't just around gender, right? We're doing significant internal racial justice work here at Repair the World to really think about what it means to be more inclusive of Jews of color, and what it means to be in better partnership with other communities of color throughout the community. And I think that we've done a lot of work, right? And there are many leaders in this space around gender issues, and there's a lot of work left to be done. When I read the research and when I talk to my colleagues who work in other parts of the nonprofit sector, it's clear to me that the Jewish community is behind I think that there are many of us working really hard to create change. And for me, this isn't just about the very real emerging issues of sexual harassment and sexual abuse in our country, but also really about what does it mean to embrace and encourage emerging leadership of all sorts in our organizations and different kinds of leadership styles and all of those kinds of things. What gives me hope in this very much is looking out at the kinds of people who are doing work in this and leading organizations. And, you know, the group of women in leadership in the Jewish community, in the philanthropy space, in the organizational space, and I see people working a lot towards change. I think that there are a set of issues that have traditionally been seen as women's issues that have to do with leadership in the Jewish community that I think aren't women's issues and increasingly aren't women's issues because of the ways that millennials perceive also their careers. So things mm -hmm. like right. flexibility and those kinds of issues, which were traditionally women's issues that are no longer women's issues uh, exclusively by any means. And still, many women I know who are in senior leadership positions or executive leadership positions are doing so at a time of their lives where they have tremendous demands at home, are dealing with aging parents, you know, have lots of things going on. I will share with you that I continue to see things that make me understand why some of the issues continue in our community. For instance, the salary gap. Right. So I'm in a position because of my leadership position, I'm hiring lots of people, even amongst professionals in their 20s and 30s, men negotiate more than women do. What we're trying to do at Repair is create real transparency around salary bans so that this issue becomes less of an issue kind of where people negotiate because there's more transparency. And I'm very hopeful that by the end of the first quarter of 2018, we'll have that work completed here. But it definitely starts at an entry level where women aren't leaning in, aren't negotiating, aren't asking for what they need at the table. So any advice from kind of these issues to just you know, advice in general, or people trying to do social action and social justice work in their communities, you know, just Jewish professionals kind of across the spectrum. Any additional advice you might have for our listeners? 
on the gender pieces. And let me say clearly that we're speaking about gender in a very binary way, and we know that it's not that way. So on the gender pieces, I'd encourage people of all genders to really throw their hat in for any opportunities that seem interesting to them, whether or not that they think that they are technically qualified for them. That's number one. We see more often that men are much more confident about going for opportunities where they might not meet all the qualifications. And that's both internal and external, right? I really encourage people, if you see an opportunity in your organization, if you think that there's work that someone needs to be done and no one's doing, to approach someone and see if you can make it your job. I've done that a few times. It's been really useful to me. What I would say in terms of advice to my peers, you know, to folks in senior leadership who've been around the table for a while is to try to remember two things. One is that we were there once too, right? So I believe we owe it to an emerging group of professionals to make the time both to have meetings, you know, to see them when they're doing informational interviews and to bring them to the table. Most of what I learned, I learned because people senior to me just brought me along to meetings and I was able to watch lots of different leadership styles. And so I encourage my peers to do that and to take meetings and, you know, spend 15 minutes on the phone with pretty much anyone who calls because I think we owe it to people. And I would say that I triply encourage them to do that for women, trans people, non-binary people, people of color, people who don't have the access to the networks that maybe men traditionally have, because even more, they, you know, the phone calls that we can make to help them in their career is really important. In terms of the social justice world, I think that this is a deeply important time for people to get involved in social justice and in whatever way makes sense to them as a volunteer, as a professional. At Repair the World, we are proud members of the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable, and many of our partners are doing very significant advocacy and campaign work, and I just recommend that people check out all of those organizations. Great. And the you know, last piece is back to you and your life and a little bit of personalness and how you get it all done and don't get too overwhelmed and maintain a position with seemingly so many different portfolios. And I can only assume you have friends and family and a life as well. So how do you keep it all together? So I'd say keeping it all together is very different than getting it all done. And I never get it all done. And part of what I realized is we're all going to die with a to-do list and that's okay. I early on learned this kind of framework for thinking about how to integrate work and life and how to choose priorities. And so this framework, it says that we are all constantly juggling multiple priorities. And some of those balls that we're juggling are made of glass. And some of those balls that we're juggling are made of rubber. And the ones that are made of rubber, if we drop the ball, it'll bounce. We can pick it up and keep on going. And the ones that are made of glass, if we drop the ball, it'll smash, right? And for me, what's been really important is to know what those glass balls are, both professionally and personally. You know, what are the things that we can sort of recover from? And what are the things that we can't? And that changes on a kind of day-to-day basis. But that's one of the ways I think about things, knowing that I'm going to drop balls and I'm going to make mistakes. And then the other thing I would say is that those of us who work in the Jewish community have this real blessing of Shabbat, whether or not we are traditionally observant. I cannot over-encourage people to take it, right? It is really, both personally and professionally for me, the opportunity to say, I am not going to do work for 
whatever it is, 25, 28 hours a week. And I'm not going to respond to emails and I'm not going to, you know, check my social media and all of those kinds of things. And that doesn't have to do necessarily with traditional observance. Personally, I am traditionally observant in some ways and not in others. But it really does have to do with the fact that I'm often shocked by the amount of Jewish professionals who don't take advantage of it and work through Shabbat. And I just really encourage everybody, like, we have this blessing because we work in this community where we have this framework. Take it, take a break, spend time Mm -hmm. with your family, spend time with your friends, go to the movies. I'm not saying you have to, like, sit and show all day, but, like, do something for yourself that's not work. Fantastic. And are there any other things that, you know, we've talked about a lot of stuff about your own role in the organization and the work of the organization and you advice for other professionals, anything else kind of lingering that you'd like to bring up? I'm a deeply optimistic person and I have the privilege of spending lots of time with people in their 20s who are dedicated to changing the world and really fixing many of the mistakes that, you know, we've all made. And I feel because of that, this real sense of the Jewish social justice movement and the broader social justice movement growing and expanding and really the work that we are all collectively doing increasing. And so at a time where I think for many of us, the world can sometimes feel fairly dark. And I feel even just now speaking about some of the gender issues, I seemed fairly pessimistic. I actually feel very optimistic based on the tremendous experiences that I have working with our fellows and volunteers based on our extraordinary team here and their commitment, and also based very much on the partners that we see in the space and their work and commitment. This is the kind of change we're all building towards in the Jewish community, the broader community is going to take a very broad and diverse coalition. And I'm at Repair the World. We're really humbled and honored to be part of it and really excited about what everyone else is doing as well. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today and sharing all of your experience and the wonderful work that you do. Really appreciate it. Thanks. It was my pleasure. As I continue to highlight some of the newer organizations emerging in our community, there emerges a stark difference between their model and the model of organizations created 100 years ago. Service learning is not a new concept to our community. Tikkun olam and social action have always been core principles of our faith. The struggle comes when we try to put these values into action. What we are good at is communicating these values to our children. Repair the World offers an opportunity for our young adults to take those values and those lessons and put them into action in a really meaningful, intentional, and well-planned way. On the professional side, Liz talks about the non-traditional varied experiences that brought her into her current role. She lifts up the gap we've talked about previously on this program in terms of how we mentor and groom the next generation of professionals, staying humble in our mid to late careers, and how we treat and understand younger, eager, enthusiastic members of our team, and doing what we can to foster that excitement, and not necessarily be threatened or frustrated by it. They have new ideas and new ways of doing their work. What are some of the ways we can see the good in that and foster that? The same goes for our younger professionals. It's not just to respect your elders, but humble yourself and the professional and personal experiences they have triumphed through. We have no other announcements this week. Our program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound. And our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, 
how to start your own podcast, and more on our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Thank you.